This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm kind of disappointed, but not really. And I'm the machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be talking about the film Night Shift. Night Shift. Chuck Lumley works nights. He's a civil servant. And so is Bill. Chuck and Bill have a very strange partnership. They also have a happy staff. Their business is growing. I feel like that could be a superhero name. I'm yeah. Night Shift. Oh, I'm going to Google it. There must be a superhero. One second. Clocking in on crime when the city sleeps. Superhero. Night Shift Comics. Oh. Fictional group of criminals. Ooh, I knew it. It was too good. It's in Marvel and they're bad guys and they fight Captain America. Would you like to hear the name of their members? Oh, I would love to. What, what are the names? The leader is Superior Spider-Man. <laughs> Current members, Brothers Grimm, uh-huh. Danson Macabre, Digger, Gypsy Moth. <laughs> Jesus. Former members, Hangman, Misfit, Needle, Shroud, Tatter Demalion, TikTok, Werewolf, Satanish, and Mockingbird. Satan-ish. Satan-ish. I'm, not, I'm not quite Satan. I'm Satan-ish, okay? That was the best name I could come up with. You do know, though, the way that Marvel is going, we are like maybe two years away from a Disney Plus series on Gypsy Moth, right? <laughs> I was hoping for TikTok. No, no, they don't want to get confused. They want to be able to be searched properly. You got to bring it all together. Shroud? Like, what do you think his evil superpower is? Yeah. You're like... I, I like the idea too of uh, I can actually just see the marketing campaign of like Satanish, which is like this young twenty-something guy probably be like shrugging his shoulders, like I'm yeah. Satanish. Aren't like, I incorrigible? What do you want to do? Uh, I kind of want to do something bad, but not like evil. You know, it's like mm-hmm. just rob a bank, but I don't want anyone to get hurt. Right. You know, I just <laughs> I I think. Hold on, I'm gonna look up Brothers Grimm. Oh God, you should look up this picture. This is not good. Are they big and beefy? They're twins. They have skull faces. They're in leotards. Good abs. And they have collars that go higher than their skulls. I have to tell you this. As someone who read a bunch of Marvel comics growing up, to be fair, mostly Spider-Man comic books, I've never heard a single one of those character names no. <laughs> in my life. <laughs> well, I thought I would understand, like, Superior Spider-Man. I like, clicked I the link. That, and it, but oh, you do know that. It says That was Doc a late Rock. run, but... Oh, it's Dr. Octopus? Yes, it's actually Dr. Octopus and Peter Parker's body. It was a whole thing. It was a whole thing. It's amazing you know that. 
All right. All right. Well, before we get into talking about this week's film, Dave, we need to strategize. Last week, we talked about DD has DDS. Oh, our books. Yeah. The accounting. Yeah, our books are being cooked, possibly. We don't know because you can't read your mm-hmm. own writing. And DD, of course, seems to be doing some shady stuff. Maybe we should invite her onto the podcast. Oh, Maybe please we do a voice. Her. Please do a voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean me do the voice? It is an actual human being in this as we live in the actual year 1982, because mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. where the machine is throwing us here in space and time. I feel like it should be German. So I think you should do mm-hmm. like a German accent. Oh, that would go very well. Yeah, super, super <laughs> well. And uh, here in Kyle and Dave's arcade and dentistry. Anyways, I'm, I'm gonna, I am I'm think I'm meeting with her earlier tonight. I'll, maybe I'll invite her and she'll make an appearance at Amazing. some point. I'm ready. So with this movie that we're talking about this week with Night Shift, I feel that this gives us our opportunity to talk about a few men specifically and our kind of like histories with them. I would say this. Mm-hmm. We're, let's start with the director because this is Ron Howard who directs this movie. And I feel unless you've truly been living underneath a rock or like super young, you have some sort of knowledge of who Ron Howard is as a personality or as a director. So Dave, tell me about your your history with Ron Howard. I'm just pulling up, like, give me a list of all his, <laughs> all his movies. So American yeah, Graffiti and Happy Days, he acts in, because mm-hmm. he, he still had hair. And then he became this big time director, which is great. Yeah, I have to say, I don't think I fully clocked like the Ron Howard director was that Ron Howard until like weirdly late. <laughs> I was uh, like, oh, those are the same two people. That's weird. He directed Solo, a Star he, well, Wars. Well, so oh, no, this the... is not Han Solo. Solo. No, this is something different. No, it is. It's, oh, it is. So this is a Star Wars movie. This movie was not. Before very we get good. to that, though, Dave, Jesus yeah. Christ, you're going all over the place here. There's an asterisk next to Solo because he came in halfway through that project. So they kicked the director off after like seven weeks or something, and he just came and finished the movie. So yes, he directed that movie, but also kind of not really. Anyways, I was going to go through his his history here. Like at this time, this is his second movie, but really right after this, you're getting into. Splash, Cocoon, Willow, Parenthood, Backdraft, uh, Apollo 13, Ransom, <laughs> A Beautiful Ed Mind, TV. Cinderella Man, The Da Vinci Code, Frost Nixon. Like, I'm not saying that I love every one of those movies, but he no, had like, a, actually a good string of hits, I would say. Bangers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, he's... I said here, did he produce Arrested Development? Interesting. He did. He was also the narrator on Arrested Development, which is why oh, they make sense. so many jokes about jokes about like Opie and Happy <laughs> other stuff and, and right, Ron right. Howard things. That's actually how I got to know him even a little bit better because I, I had watched some episodes of Happy Days, but of like all the classic sitcoms, Happy Days just wasn't one of my favorite things yeah, it's pretty to old watch. Too. Yeah, Although yeah. weirdly, I like the Andy Griffith show, so I actually know him better from the Andy Griffith no show comment. as like little Opie, yeah. as like a six or seven year old. Uh, I can still whistle the song. Wow. Yeah, but he's he been doesn't get for, more prairie than that. I guess maybe I, it was. A, I guess it's a small town, so you of course have uh, blocked it out of your life Shunned. and never watch it. Shunned. Yeah. His dad was director and writer. His mother was an actress. So he, he was, you know, the <laughs> there's a bit industry. of nepotism when he got started, of course. But he was able to sustain that career and actually created some some good things. I think even he would say that he was not like the best actor in the world, which is why he switched over to producing, directing, specifically with his partnership with Brian Grazer, which I forget what their company is called, but like 
Brian Grazer even produces this movie. So they were working together pretty early on in their in their careers. What I was going to say, this is going to sound like almost like a backhanded compliment to Ron Howard, because I find even more so than Spielberg, you know how Spielberg often will get painted with that big brush like oh he makes like movies for like dads or like they're too happy or too saccharine or whatever it is too sugary sweet i say that that same criticism happens to ron howard and i think it's also partly because i don't know if you could ever say he has a definitive style i think he is directs well like he's able to get good performances normally he knows where to put the camera effectively but my comparison is again using a very old director <laughs> Michael Curtiz. Michael Curtiz was the same way who did Casablanca is the big one for him. But he was always like the journeyman director. So even though he did like Adventures of Robin Hood and uh, The Sea Wolf and um, uh, White Christmas and this that type of stuff, you never were going to see a Michael Curtiz film. <laughs> you were going to go see the stars and the people that were in it. And he just so happened to be actually a pretty, you know, he was a good director. He knew what to do. He was a good hand to have and come onto the project. That's what Ron Howard is to me. Hmm. All right. I don't know. I obviously grew up with these films framing mm-hmm. popular culture, right? In in some sense. I do associate him with the more family-friendly affair. Not family movies, but right. like kind of like a PG, PG-13 type right. of tone. Even something like Cinderella Man. I mean, these are not particularly violent or yeah, that's not challenging raging bull movies. You're going to go and see. No. Yeah. So, the, you know, almost populist. Is that, like, is that the wrong word? Only good things have been associated with the word populist in recent history, so I say continue using that word. Yeah, I think it's generally popular. Like, his last movie, which I actually outright hated, was Hillbilly Elegy on Netflix. Oh. Which is, like, again, I did not want to watch that. That's a Ron Howard. That's a Ron it's Howard. It's a Ron Howard-directed film. Which is, again, it is there for, I don't know how else to say this without being derogatory, but like middle America is going to watch that movie and be like, hey, it was kind of a good movie. And me, I'm just going to be grinding my teeth and be like, this is bad. Yeah. <laughs> this is talking down to me. Well, I saw Glenn Close and I saw Amy Adams and I was like, oh, this has to be good. Yeah. And then I watched the trailer. I'm like, this is just a bunch of alcoholics yelling at each other in trailer park. And I yeah. can't handle that for two hours. But it never goes anywhere like... Like you just said, it's kind of the family-friendly version of oh, what that story is going to be. So the, it was a play to get Oscar wins for both Amy Adams and Glenn Close. And unfortunately, it's like, yeah, yeah. they're doing good work, quote-unquote, but this movie is terrible. But anyways, that's Ron Howard. Arrested Development is the big one <laughs> that, that I know him from as far as like performer and stuff like that. And uh, he's also... And who knows, maybe when he passes away, we'll get stories. But is one of the few people in Hollywood that literally nobody has anything bad to say about him. Like, everyone mm-hmm. loves this guy. He's like, he's nice. Yeah. He's cordial. Very great with actors. Like, every actor that has ever worked with him is like, yeah, great. Perfect gentleman. Like, n- never a bad word anyone has to say about him. So, he's one of the least problematic white men, I guess, in Hollywood is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, he seems sweet, which is why he makes sweet saccharine films. Sure. Is that right? But even in, I was watching this interview in preparation for this episode this week, and it was around 1982 when this film was coming out. And you could even see then, like, he was trying to be like, I'm, a, I'm an adult now, and I'm a director. I'm an artist. Yeah. You know, and he's like, what, mid-20, well, I guess he's like late 20s or something like that at the time. He had grown a mustache. Like, he has a beard nice. now, but he has, like, a mustache. I was like, that looks like it's a fake mustache that you just put on. <laughs> That's <laughs> the 80s, look so though, much I feel older, like. You know? Yeah, that was, you know, the only guy that seemed to pull that off was Magnum. And everybody else yeah. looked like they were gluing a brush. Many of them probably were, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is hard to grow a full, beautiful mustache. You, you should grow one. I, I've tried. It's disgusting. Yeah, it looks like uh, single hairs coming out 
and entering my mouth. It's awful. Why am I weirdly turned on by that? I'm like sniffing all over the place right now. Well, I mean, it's that and the Coke habit. It is Too 1982. Much so. Too much cocaine. Talking about happy days, of course, this stars Henry Winkler. So any uh, pass with Henry Winkler? I, I know more in his later stage. So everybody kind of growing up in our era knows about happy days, but I, yeah. like you, did not religiously watch it. It was right. on television uh, when I was a kid in reruns. I'm, I, I just looked at it. I was surprised. Happy Days is running when this film comes when out. When this comes out. Yeah. It still has two more seasons. Which is nuts. It goes to 84. For some reason, I thought it ended in like 1980 or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah. It feels old. It ran for 11 years. I knew that, but it's like, holy shoot. It, like I did not know it made, when it made it to the mid 80s. Super weird. Uh, so I know him when he did his little older man resurgence through the Adam Sandler films. Yeah, and yeah. then um, like, uh, Arrested Development, of course. Yeah. And he kind of, I mean, he was always comedian and sort of self-effusive, but he's just got a great, now he's, I think he's funnier. We'll talk about this movie. But I, now I think he's funnier because he's much more self-aware of what a, of like a cartoon character he is. Yeah. yeah. Well, have you watched this show Barry at all with Bill Hader? No, because that's on HBO. He won, his, he won his Emmy for that. I've seen clips on YouTube. It looks yeah. amazing, but yeah. I don't have access to it, so... I don't know. You know, I love Bill Hader. I didn't even know Henry Winkler was on that show. I just saw clips of oh. Bill Hader like fighting somebody in his bedroom. And I'm like, what is right, this right, yeah. about? Yeah. For some reason, I thought you were still talking about the Happy Days. And like, you didn't know the Fonz was on Happy Days. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, yeah. Happy Days. But uh, yeah, that's basically, like, you just said everything I was going to say. When you from the Adam Sandler stuff of him like kind of doing that resurgence but he's been pretty solidly on television like if you look at his imdb it's like i don't think there's a year where he didn't have some sort of job yeah he's always working so yeah, he's yeah. always working always going how about michael keaton oh it's batman this is his first movie his very first movie he was in yeah you know he, he's always sort of my main batman like i loved the christian bale uh, mm -hmm. of course but when i was growing up that's when batman batman came out so that's the primary thing but around that time too he was making i, I can't name them there's the multiplicity multiplicity i was going to say the one where there's many of him and then after this i think he kind of left my radar i think everybody's radar for a bit until uh for sure birdman which is very recent yeah, but birdman was the one i feel like really brought him back although there must have been something that got him to birdman yeah, yeah, yeah. he's probably working but that's yeah. the one where you're like oh shit this guy still got it. Mm -hmm. um, and I love, of course, the inversion of him sort of commenting on being Batman in some sense. And then since then, it's just, I mean, he's hes hidden it. Everything he's been in has been great. <laughs> well, that's the wild thing about Michael Keaton. And this is just like my perception versus what was actually going on. So I'm of the age that Batman and Beetlejuice, I guess, to an extent. All right. Beetlejuice. Sorry. Yeah. Were, that was Michael Keaton. Like, that's mm -hmm. what I thought Michael Keaton was and did. And, like, I didn't have any conception of what his previous, I don't know, personality or... That he was a comedian. Yeah. That he was a comedian, yeah. Like, he was... Second City, was he in? or And he yeah. did some stand-up and stuff here and there. Like, I just did not know that that was a thing. And then you're, you're right. Like, after that run of good to terrible uh, comedy films he does since, like, the early to mid-90s, it's like, I guess Michael Keaton just doesn't act anymore. Because I literally do not remember anything... Him being, I guess, after Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown is the last thing I can think of He's him great in that movie, being. Yeah. I mean, which he is. He's good. But that's until, like 90, yeah, 95 or something. But there's a good, like, almost 20 years until Birdman comes out that it's like, oh, shit, I guess he's here. And also, he's a great actor. Like, he's an amazing actor, I guess, here, too. Because you're right. I think there's been a bunch of films and TV work that he's done that everyone's like, yeah, amazing actor, great actor. Even though I didn't love The Trial of the Chicago 7, 
if you watch that on Netflix. His one scene that he comes in fucking nails it. He just comes in, (laughs) blows the roof off a thing, leaves, and like that's a great supporting performance right there. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what it is. Uh, He's just really maybe direct. Maybe it's the Mm -hmm. stand-up comedy roots. He's not afraid of kind of like throwing out in your face. And now that he's age two, I feel like there's a lot more depth to him. Not not to speak. I mean, this is why he's such a good Batman. He plays sort of anguish really mm-hmm. well. And he's just found roles maybe recently that really play into that. Of course, he was in Spider-Man Homecoming. He's really good as the vulture in that too. Yeah. I also wonder too, maybe this is a bit of a Henry Winkler thing. Maybe different because he was so well known as the fawn so i can't say that it's exactly a one-to-one comparison but there are those certain actors and actresses who like come onto the scene maybe have one or two movies that kind of blow up big and you don't hear about them for a while and then they kind of grow into the roles that they're made to be in (laughs) like they're better as like older actors being in films or tv shows like oh this is what you were made to do you're just too young before (laughs) to get these to get these roles and you kind of just like excel at it. Yeah, maybe. I think there's something to that. Uh, you know, I think it was tragic that we lost Paul Walker because I feel mm-hmm. like he was too pretty to get really good roles. Mm-hmm. And then just when he died <laughs> and Fast Five came out and he's starting to get a little gritty, like the Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio thing, like he, he's starting to show a little age. You're like, oh, this guy actually can act. And you know, I, I mean, I'm going to presume that he was on the cusp of getting some kind of actual drama role where he would actually kind of key into and then he killed himself driving a car too fast. So, I mean, you know, that's a whole other thing. Jackie Brown is 97. I thought that movie's older than that. You know, I'm just looking quickly at his filmography and he's actually been working. I I think you're right. I think it just took a while for him to kind of appear. Well, that's what I mean. There was nothing that was breaking through to me as like a 20 something year old and into my early 30s. No. That he was doing that was like, I guess, of interest to me or that I knew was happening. Yeah. I mean, I didn't mind the reboot of Robocop, but I forgot that he was in it. Need for Speed is actually an underrated movie, but that was the same year Birdman came out. So he wasn't even gone that long, to be honest. This felt longer. I mean, it's a 20 year break, but he's on stuff. Uh, But right now he's, I mean, Dope Six, good. And then, well, what was that? News reporter movie Spotlight? No, Spotlight. Uh, it was a Spotlight. Yeah, he he definitely knows what uh, <laughs> what type of roles to use uh, and go after. Um, do you have any history with this film? No, I've never heard yeah. of it. Actually, sorry, uh, vamp for like thirty seconds. I was going to do this right before and I forgot, so I'll be like thirty seconds. <laughs> He's trying to find his last shred of dignity. No, I can't find it. I am more than convinced that I actually have this movie on VHS. Okay. Oh, this movie. This movie. Not that I've ever seen this movie before. I have not. <laughs> but I, uh, I I brought these bunch of boxes home from my parents' house because they don't want them anymore. And they had books and other stuff in them. So I'm going through them and, and organizing them. And I'm so sure that I saw Night Shift in there. Really? And I just can't find it now. I'm quickly going through it. It's probably a box set of Night Court. I do have a copy of Moonwalker. If you wow. want to come over and watch Moonwalker wow. on VHS. I mean, it's a great dance scene. At the nightclub. Is that the first time he does the lean? I have no idea. Technically, if you look at like the history of dance, other people were doing the moonwalk before Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. He just did it well. Well, let's see if Ron Howard, Henry Winkler, and Michael Keaton can make things look good. So we're going to go on a little bit of a break here. Thanks some of the people and companies to help this show continue to go. And then when we come back, we'll be talking a little bit more about Night Shift. Have you ever had to work a night shift, by the way? Like, wh- what would you classify night? Like, overnight? Yeah, overnight. Like, the characters in this film. Uh, I've never worked in a morgue. 
I'm just trying to think. No, I don't think so. When I first moved to Calgary, my first job here was at a 7-Eleven. I was a clerk at a 7-Eleven and I worked the night shift. So from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Did you know 7-Eleven is a chain from Taiwan? I didn't. Although I do know that the 7-Elevens in Japan apparently are like the best thing in the world. So... Mm. Because yeah, I see videos all the time company. of like, that you had that at a 7-Eleven? Yeah, Helen told me around when we first started dating about 7-Eleven and how in Asia, yeah, it's like, it's where you go because they have everything. Mm. It's not like here where it's a bunch of homeless people out in front pestering you for a rotating hot dog. They have some cool stuff there, but uh, I was amazed that they had that kind of infiltration in North America. That's a big company. Well, Colony vs. the Machine, of course, is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This week, we're brought to you by PodPower. And with PodPower, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a PodPower shout-out to... Is this for real? Is this for real is a podcast about various facets of black life in Edmonton. In the first season of the show, Breaking the Blue Wall, host Omar Salafu explores anti-black racism and policing and tells stories about policing in schools, accountability in Alberta's policing system, and the impacts of police violence on black Edmontonians. You can listen to the podcast and read more about each episode at isthisforreal.ca. You can also support the work of these podcasters and future seasons on Patreon. Kyle, why is there so much hate in the world? <laughs> hey, the fuck's going on? Why can't I just run a prostitution ring out of a morgue like any enterprising young-blooded American? Wow. So our second sponsor is Alberta Blue Cross. Kyle, you're a business owner. Is your life hectic? It's very hectic. Alberta Blue Cross understands that. They offer flexible health dental, life, and disability coverage for your employees, Kyle, for your employees. Even better, you can let your staff enroll and manage their coverage at any time on any device. That makes life easier for them and for you. You've got this when it comes to group coverage for your small business, and Alberta Blue Cross has got your back. Has got your back. Am I intoning that incorrectly? To learn more and explore your options- Got your back. And Alberta Blue Cross has got your back. <laughs> to learn more and explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. They probably don't want me to mention this right after your great spot there for mm-hmm, Alberta Blue Cross. Mm-hmm. I worked pretty hard on that. I, and I, I don't know how Grinder is still working here in 1982, but this uh, <laughs> Deep Throat Northwest is certainly very aggressive. <laughs> I'm seeing oh, messages working, yeah. on my phone, still trying nice. to. I've not responded once, and they are going at it. Well, that's how you get so deep in the throat. So, Dave, we sat down and watched Night Shift. If someone came up to you, let's say Mm -hmm. some youngster, your son even, (laughs) was walking down the aisles of uh, Sunrise Records. I don't even know where Blood sells videos anymore. He's like, Dad, what's Night Shift? That's my voice. That's my impression. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah. (laughs) What would you say Night Shift is about? No, I'd say... Mind your own business. This is not a movie made for you. I mean, why is <laughs> a kid asking me about Night Shift? Yeah. What is Night Shift about? Night Shift is about being a spineless piece of shit who can't get his life together. No, it's, it's about a couple of guys who decide that it'd be a good idea mm-hmm. to use their weird job to become wow. a safe haven. They work at a morgue. I don't know if that's weird necessarily. To uh, act, become a safe haven for the... Ladies of the night? 
Yeah, I was gonna, I was just trying to think of like yeah, I can't think prostitutes. <laughs> no, no, no I, I know they're prostitutes. I was just gonna say like uh, vulnerable for oh, a I group see. of vulnerable prostitutes who really need loving and caring pimps as opposed to the normal variety. And what did you think about this movie? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, it was okay. I, I think Michael Keaton's great in it. Some of the comedy bits I LOL'd yeah, at like 11 too. p.m. in the middle of the night, worried that I was waking somebody else up until it turned out that hockey fans fucking freaked oh out on the cloud because of the flames and this people were date honking. This episode and when we're recording it, but yes, oh. it got very loud so when a certain hockey team won. Yeah, Calgary Flames. You can, you can say Calgary Flames. I don't think we're going to get sued for that. Ugh. Anyways, I used to be a sports fan, so I get it. But I'm an old man now, and I don't want people to wake up my sleeping son. So uh, kindly take your horns and uh, fuck off. Am I allowed to say that? Probably sure. not. But what about the movie, Dave? <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I'm in a weird headspace today. I, you know, I thought it was okay. I It's very 80s in the sense yes. that, like, I don't know. You know, like, it just feels a little cheap. It's a little long-winded. There were parts where I felt very bored and I ended up hating Henry Winkler as a character. I could mm. not, by the end of the movie, I just, I was getting this gut feeling. I don't care. I don't give, I don't care. Like how many times do you have to be such a broken, spineless, useless piece of crap I blaming everybody around you? Sure. Uh, he learns the lesson in the last one minute, mm. you know, and then all of a sudden he punches and pushes a guy in a pool and you're like, yay. No, I didn't, I didn't buy that. Uh, and the only other thing is uh, what, uh, what's her name? Cheers. Shelly Long. Shelly Long. She's so charming, right? She's got mm. that like uh, great bubbly energy. The character doesn't make any sense and uh, she disappears yeah. for like half the movie towards the end and I, I didn't understand how I was supposed to read that relationship by the end of the movie. It, it just felt like very messy to me. So, I, th I definitely agree that a lot of the characters in this are very thinly drawn. Like they are like, you are this thing. Mm -hmm. no character growth it's like you're just yeah. this thing i didn't have as negative a reaction to henry winkler as you did i, I agree that he I, I really do feel this is a 2022 opinion on this okay because uh, i don't know if it would necessarily translate that much in the early 80s when so much of the media was kind of the same thing he is a bad person <laughs> he he's using like oh i'm sad in my life to justify a lot of stuff that he's doing in this movie I feel empathy for him in certain bits because like, once again, I internalize a lot of these things. So like, well, I also don't like stand up for myself a lot of the time. And I also am a bit of a pushover at times. At the same point, he's a real dirtbag to his fiance in this movie, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there is that, that part of it. I think my biggest thing, I'm, I'm actually fascinated. You did not bring this up because you're usually the first one to jump on this. This feels like a television pilot stretched over yeah. to 90 minutes to me <laughs> like a sitcom pilot from the early 80s stretched out over 90 minutes and because of that because you're used to writing a what 25 minutes for for a pilot episode the shenanigans and like the complications feel like okay like we get it <laughs> let's yeah. get onto the new thing or bring in something new for them to like uh wrestle with and it never really does. So I, that's why I feel like the middle portion really struggles and like so feels empty. lethargic almost and yeah. empty. Where the setup to this movie, Hilarious. and I would even say the resolution of this movie, are so strong. I think yeah. that's where the best stuff comes in and a lot of the best comedy bits come in. So there's that. And I think also that I, I've been really thinking about this since we finished watching it and walked over here to record. 
I wonder if my feelings of this, and I guess we don't know our scores 100% yet, why I think I'm probably more positive on this movie than you is because because of that, because it feels so TV. I think because I, I associate Shelley Long and uh, Henry Winkler so much with TV sitcoms. I was like, okay, we're, I'm just watching a sitcom here then. And of course, these two people are in it. <laughs> and that's yeah. why I think Michael Keaton seems so good because he's in his own stratosphere of doing he's, something. He's a movie star. Yeah. Right. Like he's yeah. the movie star and these are the sitcom stars. I don't want to be like so flippant on that. Like one is better no, than the I, other because it's just different skill sets. But like. I think it's a good point. You know, I agree with that uh, so strongly, I suppose, or why I'm mm-hmm. like uh, nodding my head. Uh, vigorously, which is not showing up on the audio, unless you can hear the mucus <laughs> sloshing around. Is, is the, I think this movie shows why Henry Winkler never made it as a film right. lead. Yes. Because he had enough TV credibility as the Vons that you would think that he might have had a shot at becoming like a comedic film actor. And yeah, yeah. we see why that isn't the case. I would challenge the idea that He's just a dirtbag. Like the setup, they do enough that you see how complicated he's made his own life. Yes. And so, I feel like by the end of the movie, I felt like if somebody, if somebody else had taken that role, even if Michael Keaton had inverted it and he was the main character or whatever you can call sure. it, the uh, suffering character, this movie would have a lot more depth to it. But Henry Winkler isn't capable of playing both. So, at the beginning, he does the bumbling idiot. By the end, he's just an angsty failure. And I didn't get enough out of that to make it believable all he needed to do was hit the jukebox and everything would have turned out okay there's that thing we've talked about this before and it is not something that makes any rational sense but Shelley along too there's a tv beauty and tv charm and then there's film beauty and film charm and it's very hard to be in the middle it is also a it's also a TV version of what a prostitute is. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, the, I, the prostitutes are a joke. Like, I'm not this. asking them to be like a gritty, realistic version of a prostitute because it still is a comedy that we're doing. But they I, reference Clute. I, I mean, know. that was a huge mistake. That was a huge it's mistake. Like, oh, why are you talking about Clute in this? Like <laughs> the best version of what this movie should be. <laughs> um, I mean, Clute's not a comedy or anything like that. I, I watched this old Siskel and Ebert review of this movie. Mm. Spoiler alert, they did a, both did a thumbs down. Actually, they didn't do thumbs down at that point in time. It was that they said no. Yeah. <laughs> they just said no. Uh, anyways, that's beside the point. Ebert brings up the point. I don't know if I 100% agree with him, but I think it's worthy of a discussion, which is like, should there be a comedy about prostitutes? Like, because of the reality of what prostitution is, is that even a funny premise to start off with? And I kind of agree with him. I think Siskel responds back, I think, very well, which is like, well, if it was super funny, their section was like hilariously funny, we wouldn't be having this discussion. It would just be funny and we would say, great, it works. It's the, unfortunately, it's not. And then we're forced to like think about the reality of the situation. Like they're in a very dark, awful situation within this movie that they're kind of treating flippantly. You brought up last episode about this sort of conservative core. And I think mm-hmm. Ebert echoes that. You can make, you should be able to make comedy about anything. It, and like, Cisco says, as long as it's done well, like Dave Chappelle made a whole career, not just as a shock comic, but his show is so amazing because he does white face, he does black face, he does, he makes fun of every, every problematic aspect of American culture and he makes it funny because he's actually good at it. If he was a shit comedian, that thing would have got destroyed, right? Because you shouldn't be making jokes about a blind black uh, white supremacist, you know, things of that nature. The unfortunate part, just because you've brought him up specifically, the unfortunate part is that now he is 
so far into like anti-trans jokes that he's forgetting to be funny about them. I'm sure there's a way to enter into that conversation funny, and now it's just like gross. They're a man or they're a woman, actually. That's yeah, end of joke. He's caught in it, but he's yeah, he's stuck in a battle with with mm -hmm. PC and cancel culture, and that's a hard thing to be funny about because it's personal. And I think that's that's the thing that all comedians are struggling right now. So I, I don't have a comment on that. I haven't watched actually a Chappelle special. Yeah. I didn't even watch the controversial one. It just hasn't been on my radar. I did try to watch the Dave Spade, I told you, and I couldn't get through the first 10 minutes because he starts going anti-vaccine. And I was like, I know maybe he's being sarcastic, but I can't Right. Handle people cheering in the crowd because they're actually freedom people, and I was like, I don't, I can't not uh, get today. the joke. I'm not laughing. Not today, Satanish. <laughs> Satanish. Yeah. So that's the thing, right? Like, what are the prostitutes in here for? They're not here to be characters. They're here to take their shirts off, and it's kind of sad because I think this is such an '80s trope thing. Everything's about trying to get the boobs out in this like party. You know, frat boy culture. There's a frat boy scene. I mean, it feels like right. they're there just for Of course, for that scene. Clint Howard shows up uh, in this movie. Like, of course. Super weird. And so that's where it gets cheap, I think. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know? I will say this here, though. Like, we've been leveraging a lot, a lot of negative reactions to this. I do want to make a point that I think there are some really well thought out jokes and performances oh, yeah. in this. Mostly, yes, around Michael Keaton. But I would say even like Henry Winkler and Shelley Long get some good jokes here and yeah, there. Yeah, but yeah. specifically Michael Keaton, like talking just talking about boobs and stuff like that. My favorite thing was him like, all right, well, I just need to see your boobs. And then that thing like crafting. And so I was like, I don't need to see your boobs. And then like, he just moves on. <laughs> like, it's just such like a great like it's, it's no deadpan up. reaction to that. It's like that's what makes that a funny joke. He's famous, I think, for Beetlejuice because a lot of it's mm -hmm. improv, right? I mean, he's he's just a quick talker, quick thinker. Right. And uh when he gets to play that role, like in this film, he's he's so fun to watch. Like the moment he walks into the uh, doorway of the oh, you know, yeah. opening scene of the office, Which, you're like, again, this guy's going to Ron Howard. I think that's a great framing shot of him coming uh, silhouetted up shadow. to that door yeah. and stuff. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, from a performance aspect. The other line reading that Michael Keaton does that killed me in this movie about a morgue. The first time they open up one of the, oh, the yeah. drawers with it, he's like, that's a dead guy. <laughs> or no, that guy's dead. Like, yeah. just the way he says that is so funny. Oh, and then, well, he, like, immediately moves on, too. It's not yeah. like, he doesn't say it in the, in the sense, like, he's shocked about it. He's just like, oh, that's a dead guy. And then he makes the next show. It's hilarious. Would you say that his character is the first podcaster? Because <laughs> he's going on recording people. <laughs> yeah, his idea, his idea recorder. I love the idea of, of feeding fish mayonnaise to make oh no i love the build salad. up right he's like well we gotta have the the mayo in the can wait a second what if we feed the tunas the mayo <laughs> he's just like, like what, what is going about? on <laughs> <laughs> that's good i mean that's that's actually reasonably strong writing it's hilarious i don't know if he came up with and that who knows if that's writing or improvised like i don't yeah. actually know that actually so. it kind of feels improvised doesn't it because he's just rolling with this dumb idea is great and mm -hmm. his guilt trip you know when henry winkler has his first uh blow up saying that yeah. we're not friends you know and he's lying down in the bed with his tape recorded that stuff's fun and i was definitely in for the ride as far as uh, how it's shot like you said you know there's a lot of call outs to traditional filmmaking the mm -hmm. silhouettes the the use of everything like even the 80s trope of the slow motion first death juxtaposed to the yes. dunking competition i mean that's a very 80s thing <laughs> which by the way this this movie opens up 
you know, with basically being um, a send up to shaft of some kind, say, like it's like a black exploitation type thing. Yeah. It's like, oh, you can definitely tell this is like a white person filming this because mm. this is not <laughs> the black exploitation movies we were watching before. But they do that weird destiny of throwing them through the basketball hoop and all that thing. But the one comes like, is that Richard Belzer? <laughs> like, yeah. It's like the guy from Law and Order who was yeah. back here doing this. Who was a well, comedian uh, too, I think. But The basketball player was uh, the FBI agent in Die Hard. It's oh, just right. fun. Yeah. You know, I, I think it sets the tone. They do that setup and then they never show up for like another hour and a bit into the movie. Yeah. I'm like, why did we start that way? I was like so confused well, for a while. you need the tension to understand yeah. how dangerous and gritty is, except, you know, all the prostitutes are actually fine. None of them are actually junkies yet. They mm-hmm. just seem like nice ladies who are stuck. And they're not even in a rut. They're all kind of engaged with it, which is an interesting sort of storytelling yeah. aspect of this you know well and, and just to put a fine point if people have not listened to our like smithereens episode i think a great comparison to this that one also features prostitutes again not necessarily a comedy first but as i think able to realistically portray prostitution and have a character be funny and actually have them be a real person <laughs> like you you can do it you can do it you can do it if you if you have an empathetic thing this one's more like uh like a sense of pity. I don't. I don't know. It was just kind of weird. Even the setup for their business. You know, why don't we become uh, you know nice pimps who mm-hmm. uh, only take ten percent of your earnings, and you can all be rich. It's just a weird. Yeah, you hear that, Apple? Weird... They only take ten percent. Okay. <laughs> you know, midway through it, from a story perspective, you know, they're basically becoming a high-end escort call girl yeah. service. And uh, and then the women kind of disappear, except to appear with no shirts on. And the story is really about, you know, Henry Winkler, as you described, you know, letting people walk over him, all over him. The fiance is such a weird character. Uh, I don't know if Ron Howard was going through some stuff or no, it's not Ron Howard, the writer, yeah. that they would make such a character in a pantomime of a desperate and a broken woman obsessed with her weight and like i mean I don't I, know. again i think that's an interesting thing to explore I, i've been in relationships i'm sometimes that person in a relationship who you know gets like self-conscious self-conscious about sure. different things so like that that feels real especially in a fiance relationship but yeah it does go weird like cheat eating like yeah. while they're having sex i don't know it just got to a point where it didn't make any sense and then having her puritan parents show up from what is it idaho or indiana mm-hmm. or who gives a shit we get like five minutes of henry winkler's mom as an overbearing control freak except when she enters the dinner she's like this comedic fun mm-hmm. mom like it's just the the, the things keep flipping and it's hard to... Yeah, it's sitcom set, setups. Like, yeah. it's sitcom. It's hard and, to understand we'll, what's going on. We'll find out here. It's mostly because these writers came from writing sitcoms. So, yeah. I think that's probably why. This movie would have been better if they also had to keep hiding their business from Mr. and Mrs. Roper. So, to that point, let's do some backstory here. This movie opened up on July 30th, 1982. It is currently rated 3.2 on Letterboxd. That's out of 5. 6.5 out of 10 on IMDb. It has a 62 on Metacritic. And on Rotten Tomatoes, from 26 critics, it has a 92%. And from 5,000 plus users, it has a 63%. So, a pretty big divide. 92 is weird. Well, again, 92% of critics liked the movie. Doesn't mean they loved the movie. It just means they liked the movie. Oh, so they're above a 5 out of 10 type there, of thing. Yes, I think it has to be 6 out of 10 or above. So, technically, 92% of people could give this a 6, and it would be called 92% fresh. It's the problem with stats. People yes. don't understand. Yeah. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray, although really enough, 
The DVD costs more than the Blu-ray, but regardless, mm. you can buy or rent it on iTunes and YouTube. Its budget at the time was $8.1 million, which I feel is like really high, but regardless. Maybe that went to Winkler because he was such a big name at the time. I don't know. Well, is Shelley Long already doing Cheers or is this just before Cheers? No, Cheers debuts in 1982. Okay, so when so this came out, big... Cheers had actually not even started airing. There are a lot of set pieces, right? Yeah. In this thing, There's they're on the streets. So who knows? Mm -hmm. and how much money could Henry Winkler want? One million dollars. Um, mm -hmm. Its box office would be $21.1 million. So it made money. So that's probably yeah. why he was able to make Splash the year after this. Uh, so that's $63 million adjusted for inflation. Its plot description is a mild-mannered morgue attendant is assigned to the night shift and his new co-worker, along with his prostitute neighbor, convince him of running a prostitution ring out of the morgue. What do you have done, by the way, to Tex, the guy who she had over playing country music <laughs> super, super loud? That was really weird. Uh, sorry, what was the question? What, what would, would you do, do if that was waking you up in the middle of the night? Would you go over and tell him to shut up? No, I have, but mm -hmm. uh, like here we've had some stuff, mm -hmm. but uh, I don't know if I knocked on a door and this six foot five giant guy in a fucking Stetson came out. I don't know what I would do. <laughs> Super How weird, you, partner. <laughs> I don't know. That, right. that apartment though, I mean that New York stereotype of the grit apartment. I don't know if I would knock a door if I was living in a right, building like, like that, right? Getting chased by a dog every day. You're going to get a gun put in your face at some point. So different scenarios. Well, Dave, it's time to play everyone's favorite game. Guess, Guess that, that tag. This is, of course, the part of the show where I don my favorite blazer, the long microphone that Bob Barker would always use. And Good old Dave Bob. has to guess which of these is the real tagline to this movie. You know, when you go to a movie theater, going to enjoy the new uh, Mission Impossible, the new Top Gun movie, you will see a line of posters advertising other films that are going to be coming out very soon. And you have the graphics and the pictures and usually just a bunch of floating heads nowadays. But mm -hmm. also there's a tagline written on the poster somewhere that gets you to entice you even more so. Of these three options, one of these is the real, actual tagline that was for this movie. The other two yep. are completely made up by me. So, Dave, is the actual tagline for this movie, ever since two enterprising young men turned the city morgue into a swinging business, people have been dying to get in. Or is it, a couple of lucky stiffs learn how the world's oldest profession isn't all it's cracked up to be. Or is it Chuck Lumley is about to discover that running a business is all about screwing people? <laughs> Which of those three yes. do you think is the real tagline? I don't know. I'm going to go with two. Let's go with two. Two. You're picking a couple of lucky stiffs learn how the world's oldest profession yeah, isn't sure. all that it's cracked up to be? Yeah. Incorrect. The actual tagline is number one. Ever since wow. two enterprising young men turned the city morgue into a swinging business, people have been dying to get in, which I don't think really talks about what this movie is about. But whatever. No. I mean, there's actually no corpses other than implied ones. Mm -hmm. and uh, But no one's dying to get into it either. Like, it doesn't no. become a, like a club. Like, not really. Well, like, they do one scene one of them getting party. in a club. Yeah, a there's party a one thing. frat party. This stars Henry Winkler as Chuck Lumley, Michael Keaton as Bill Blaza, Blazowski, I think is how you say his name, right. Shelley Long as Belinda Keaton, and Gina Hecht, sorry, Gina Hecht as Charlotte Google. 
Uh, I think that is an autocorrect. I don't think that's actually her last name. Anyways, <laughs> it's Charlotte something. <laughs> we have not really talked about Shelley Long no. all that much, but I think we should talk about her just a little bit more because I'm actually very curious. She, we talked about Cheers. Cheers would be uh, debuting in September of 1982 and was almost canceled after his first season because it got really low ratings. Mm-hmm. And then someone at the studio... I think it was the wife of one of the executives. Says, oh, I like that show. Keep it on. And then it became like the biggest thing in the second season that lasted 11 seasons uh, to like 1993. Shelley Long was only in for the first five seasons as like a, a regular character as Diane. But I, what I'm all leading this up to say is that at that time when she left, the news reports and anything you read was like she was difficult to work with. And I always wonder, especially in the 80s, like, what was she or was it one of those things where it's like she's a woman and it's just like listen i want you to write better stories for me be a more well-defined character and people are like oh that bitch why is she coming here and asking for better things like a meryl streep and sophie's choice yeah but that's the thing i i, I you know why i would push back on that is because there are meryl streeps even if we could transport ourselves onto the set of cheers and overhear a conversation so even if she's uh, demand demanding rewrites because she thinks you know women should be portrayed differently the fact that it didn't work and the fact that she doesn't really have a career after cheers tells me that it's she's also a working actress she's like in things every year too but you're right i agree like she never reaches that height ever again so i think there's some merit to reading that as a personality thing you know whatever that is and you're right there's no way to know what a person has to do to get onto somebody's black or gray list whether it's personal or just being in hysterics men and women there's a lot of i mean uh tommy mcguire infamously disappeared for so long because he's apparently such an asshole so i don't mean hysterics in a uh, sexualized way but uh, or in a gender specific way but uh, i don't know right uh, it's it's hard to say t- it's hard to say but history shows us that uh, some people are difficult but they're talented enough mm-hmm. that's worth it and some people are just difficult and i think this yeah. might be the latter oh. it's hard to say i will say this unabashedly I know this makes me sound like an old man. I love Cheers. I think it's a great show. Uh, and I think it still holds up. You can watch it nowadays and it's interesting how well I think it holds up as far just as like the comedy beats. talking shit to each other. I mean, it's a Basically. classic trope. Yeah. But it's also one of those things that I just like it basically just takes place in one <laughs> location mm. too. Like so it feels like a play that you're watching. And I love Frasier too. So the spinoff of it. One thing we didn't mention that I just think we should talk about for Henry Winkler this would have been, I think, just after, maybe the year after, they literally jumped the shark in Happy Days. Like, this is where that phrase comes from when you say something jumps the shark and starts to become bad. Happened on Happy Days because the Fonz gets on some water skis and literally jumps over a shark. So I just think it's interesting that Henry Winkler is part of <laughs> the, the episode and the show that put that into, like, the popular lexicon. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I, didn't, I don't really even understand how the phrase is used. I certainly don't use it. Apparently not, because it is a big thing. Jumpingtheshark.com is a website you can even go to where they catalog when certain Why? shows jump the shark, which is so basically the point in the show. shit? Basically, it's like, this is the point in the show where things went from like, yeah, it, it turned a corner to be like, now it's basically bad mm. uh, show to watch. You could still have like good shows maybe in there, but predominantly it has now gone from good to bad. So when did The Simpsons jump the shark? 
Okay. That is going to be dependent on your point of view. And we do not have time to unpack this. But uh. <laughs> um, yeah, jump the shark. Weird. I guess I don't watch enough TV to care. <laughs> and you don't know anything about TV tropes, apparently, either. Maybe my life would be better if I was online less. It's uh, the cinematography is by this guy named James Crabe, who is his top four off of IMDb are The China Syndrome from mm. 1979, Rocky from 1976, oh. The Karate Kid from mm. 1984, and The Karate Kid Part Two from 1986. So he knows his way around the camera. Yeah, interesting stretch. This is a complete aside. I've always thought that the actual cinematography of The Karate Kid is amazing, but yeah, that's a that's a side first point. movie holds up very well. Yeah, and the second one, I just had a crush on that Asian girl who was in Joy <laughs> Luck Club. So uh, I don't have an objective. Pat Morita, Dave. So, <laughs> um, but that the first one holds up pretty well. It's it's a pretty good movie. I I tried to watch the TV mm. re- uh, thing. Cobra I didn't Kai? like it. Yeah, I can't yeah. really sit through it. Uh, it's written by these two people, and I swear to God, these are their real names. Did you notice the names when they popped up? I no. like lost it when I saw these people's <laughs> names. Lowell Gans nice. and Bobaloo Mandel. Wow. <laughs> Lowell and Bobaloo. Okay. Lowell and Bobaloo, directed by Ron Howard. Talking about Lowell and Bobaloo, uh, they were basically a writing team. They didn't do everything together, but they did a lot of stuff together. And especially in this time period. So Lowell started on Happy Days. They both would write for Laverne and Shirley, as well as Joni Loves Chachi. Did you know, by the way, another fun fact, I think, I think, Happy Days and All in the Family are tied with the most amount of spinoffs that mm. they generated. Interesting. Because if you don't know, Mork and Mindy is also a spinoff of Happy Days. Oh, really? <laughs> it absolutely is. Mindy shows oh. up in an episode and then they spin it off with Mork as its own TV show. Wild. It is so right. wild. And the, the fawn shows up in the first episode of Mork and Mindy. You are definitely a TV <sighs> guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Night Shift would be their first feature film and would continue to work with Ron Howard because they would write Splash, Gung Ho, and Parenthood, all of which he would direct. They're also responsible, though, for Spies Like Us and City Slickers. So hmm. I feel they got a handle of actually writing movies rather than uh, TV sitcoms. Absolutely, yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Now, according to Ron Howard in this interview I watched on YouTube this week, the idea for this movie was to make it a soft R rather than a sexy PG. Mm, That's his wow. words, his exact words. So um, how's that soft R going there for you, Dave? <laughs> well, it's limp. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's flaccid. <laughs> it's a flaccid R. Was this movie rated R? It was. This is an R-rated movie. Why? I guess because there's so many naked women in no it. No swearing, right? Like, I don't think there's much swearing. It must have been for the breasts, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, it's 80s, so I don't really remember how the rating board... PG-13 was not yet a rating, I don't think, no. in 1982, so... No, so it's PG. It's definitely not a PG which would, Which, if this movie was released today, it would be PG-13, 100%. Yes, just because the concept is about prostitution and yeah. death. You know, a place where you accumulate dead people. Mm -hmm. Now, we talked about this already, but Ron Howard, of course, had been around for like over two decades at this point. The little kid Opie in The Andy Griffith Show, the little kid in The Music Man, was in American Graffiti while he was still a teenager, gets the job on Happy Days, of course, as Richie Cunningham. He would leave that show at the beginning of the eighth season and then would only make these sporadic appearances on the show for the next uh, four years. He would make his directing debut with this film called Grand Theft Auto in 1977, which he co-wrote with his dad. And it was helped along by producer 
Roger Corman, a guy who we keep kind of mentioning here because he helped a lot of people get their starts in the industry. Corman, of course, was known for letting people get their starts because he made schlock really cheap movies. So he basically like, like here's $500,000, do what you want with this. Cheap, just 500000 well, you know, pocket even change. in 1982, that is like a nothing budget. <laughs> no, I'm just talking about the, the sum in general. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as this movie goes, I've literally got nothing. I could not find out any information about the making of this movie. Now, that being said, I found an article. Ron Howard is quoted as saying, when Henry first read with Michael, so Henry Wrinkler and Michael Keaton, Henry said, that guy's talented, but I don't know if I'm comfortable working with him. I told him that was good because Chuck in the film is certainly not comfortable with Bill. Before long, they were fine, but there was this initial week or two where Henry was not at all comfortable with Michael's rhythms, and that was good. It gave the relationship that oft-balance texture. So, interesting him looking at that yeah, good acting versus bad acting Are we gonna- <laughs> <laughs> well henry winkler on the other hand was uh quoted as saying ron howard was very nervous because he was young he didn't know if the crew and the cast of that size in a major motion picture would listen to him and would have respect for him uh, again remember his first film yes he had directed it but it, that was like independent crew it was not backed by a studio so they're just like very different things. Winkler continued on saying there was a commercial at the time in 1982 for E.F. Hutton, which was a stockbroker firm. And the thing went, when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. And then all the extras in the commercial would wait to hear what E.F. Hutton had to say. You would ask, you would ask Ron Howard a question on the set and he would say, let me think about that. And the entire crew, the entire cast waited to hear what Ron had to say, because in an instant he had full command, full respect of the entire operation. So again, just another Continued thing of like people just really like working with Ron Howard and they care what he has to say. Good. Mm -hmm. Good for Ron. Good old Ron. It's actually really funny too, because even in 1982, the interviewer is like, Ronnie, I have to ask you this question. It's like, he's still like Ronnie Howard. He's not Ron Howard yet. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Here's the other last thing, Dave. Uh, That's the backstory, of course. There's another person that I think we really need to talk about in this movie. Burt Bacharach. What do you know about Burt Bacharach? Nothing personally. He's just a lounge king. I, I mean, I guess uh, so. Raindrops yeah. Keep Fall on My Head is probably the most popular, would you say? Well, this I don't know. song, uh, what's it called again? Uh, You've Got Friends in Me. Or you Got no, Friends. Um, or is that, you, no, You Got Friends is the one from Toy Story. No, right? not that You Got Friends. It's, um, that's what friends are for. That's, that's what, what is. that's what friends are for. I, yeah, I that's playing the throughout the whole. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 You Got Friends in Me is the Toy Story one. Yes, that's what's right. That guy? <laughs> Yeah. Anyways, um, that's all I got. And then Austin Powers made him famous again because yes, he did back. the big, uh, big cameo in that. Big at scoring stuff. Like he would have been scoring stuff. Actually, do you know what the first movie he scored a song for was? I just found this out because I just watched it for the first time. The original The Blob in 1958. What? If you watch <laughs> the original The Blob, if you've never watched it, it is bonkers because it starts off with like, a croony like like a lounge music like the blobs come in on the walls like they just singing this thing and then there's face of black and then a horror movie starts and you're like what was that <laughs> what the fuck was that it's so weird nice i think he's fine he's a fine composer for the most part i had no idea that this was the movie literally that he wrote that's what friends are for for like yeah it, it debuted in this movie sung by rod stewart when the uh, melody started interweaving yes. throughout the film and i was like i was like oh my god why is this happening and then it turns out a because again because i know 
I knew what the song was. Does that song and its message make sense for this movie? Because I don't think it does. Like, I no. don't think it does. At least not in our reading of what happened in the film. Yeah. Again, this is 40 years and knowing that song very well. Like, at the time, probably no one cared. But I'm just like, why, why are they playing? <laughs> that's what friends are for. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe that's what friends are for. Challenging each other to do different things, I guess. Mm. I don't know. I will say the Dion Warwick version is far superior. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> you're not outright. a Roddy friend? Yeah. You, you don't like the uh, the super feathered hair? and uh... No, I, I, I don't, Dave. <laughs> I think it works better with uh, with Elton John, Dion Warwick, Gladys Knight, and uh, Stevie Wonder. Those are the four mm. people that sing on the... That came out four years later for AIDS benefit, by the way. If people don't know, like that's where it really became a huge thing. A popular song. And uh, just going down this road even more so... If you want the best performance of that song, I think it's at the BET Awards where uh, Elton John couldn't make it. So Luther Vandross subs in for him. Nice. It's amazing. <laughs> that whole performance is amazing. Oh, and Whitney Houston has to step in for Gladys Knight. So oh, it's like wow. bonkers just, great. <laughs> just the biggest voices. Like the biggest Luther voices Vandross in the world. is like, yeah, velvet, honey. When it's mm. with some people can just. Well, I actually think that's true for um, Stevie Wonder's voice. I really like his singing voice a lot. So for him, I, I just find his energy is very 80s. So I have <laughs> trouble sitting down sense. with it anymore, you know? But uh, I mean, there's a reason why Stevie Wonder, you know? That's he's, right. He's very talented. So yeah, Burt Bacharach. There's, there's some good music in this, I guess, uh, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the movie. It's 82, right? We're in this sort of like late cusp of new genres, old mm -hmm. genres, new genres. So I'm disco's dead. Rock's taking a bit of a break. Hair bands are starting out. We got new mm -hmm. wave and punk. Like yeah, there's all this stuff. Bit coming. of a hodgepodge. Yeah. So if Burt Bacharach's. So how do we get to the 90s then? Because the 90s has that very specific sound now, too. When I listen back, I'm like, ooh, that is a 90s song. Well, it's the counterculture of uh, 80s pop. You know, New Wave becomes uh, synth pop. And then synth mm. pop becomes. And then, like, movie scores start putting out these songs. Actually, you know what this movie started uh, reminding me of? How much you hated Tarzan. Because they just kept repeating yeah. the song over and over again. And I think maybe. And these kids in Seattle were like, I'm so tired of hearing pop stars sing movie songs over and over on the radio. I just want to scream at shit in my garage. And uh, maybe that's where garage rock comes from, right? That is an interesting thing because this is, I would say, the 80s specifically. And, it, you know, a little bit into the early 90s, how much it just was like pop singles would debut in a movie. Yeah. And then people would go and watch them like, oh, I want to request that on the radio. And then you would just yeah. hear that on the radio. That's right. Just recycled. And then those would be nominated for like best song at the Academy Awards because it just was sung in the movie or over the closing credits. My, you know, my presumption would be that, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but if you're an angsty tween in Seattle, you aren't worried about who's wearing, uh, who's winning Grammys and stuff. But if sure. you turn on your radio and all you're hearing is Whitney Houston and uh, Elton John and like even go to the, the retro channels, so you might get some Zeppelin, et cetera, but it's likely going to also include rock songs that were present in popular culture, it's going to get a little exhausting because I know when I was growing up in the 90s and late 80s, it's all the same songs. It's why I'm so well-versed. Like we were talking a couple weeks ago about the top 10 hits in 1982. I know all of them. I shouldn't, mm -hmm. right? Why should I know any of those songs? But that's how recycled uh, popular music was already becoming. And in a stark contrast, I can't stand pop music now 
because I don't understand why anybody likes these songs. I don't even know what people are singing about, except having an incredibly pornographic sex. And oh, I, I think I, that, I know. I think that I think that's a little over. I mean, there was it, sexual songs it, in the eighties too, Dave. Like we break down physical that we just li- listen to is all sure. about having sex. Like that is what sure. that song's about. But it's it's like a weird coded thing. Now it's like quite. Uh, oh, explicit. I mean, I don't. You're, you're, it's you're, just like you're not a fan of the explicitness of it. Well, I, I just think it's it's like uh, it it loses any artistry. If I decide I'm going to make a song about putting a dick in my mouth, and then the lyric is "Put your dick in my mouth," that's not art. That's not poetry. That is just yeah. Put that dick in a box first is what we're asking <laughs> you to do. So. Well, that's what made "Dick in a Box" such a hilarious bit. Because it was pantomiming all of the illusions of mm-hmm. the 80s, uh, you know, ACDC. Every song's about sex. Does your son like those songs? No. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, we don't really let him listen to, sure. you know, Nicki Minaj and Megan Thee Stallion or whatever. Post Malone. Oh, Lizzo. Are you like anti-Lizzo or? Lizzo, I loved uh, that one track that came out and I was a big fan. I her NPR Tiny Desk concert is amazing because yeah. she's so talented. But, With her flute? Uh, when I... When I put on uh, her album, I, I had to stop listening because yeah. it's it's kind of depressing. Actually, she's pretty unhappy, <laughs> but she's got pipes. She can sing, man. Well, you should listen to some happy music like uh, Phoebe Bridgers. Let's listen to Phoebe Bridgers. She's like What's super that? happy. Oh, oh, she's like very sad um, <laughs> indie pop. Anyways, these are two, now, we're now two old men talking about pop music. We have no right to talk about. Um, <laughs> Last one of the last '80s things. Two last '80s things. One, he's playing with a Rubik's cube in his bed, which is interesting. Mm. And secondly, the not one but two gay panic jokes. Yeah. Right. His former girlfriend was a lesbian, and then like the guy who winks at them in the jail. How so. can I sink any lower? Yeah, a little cheap. And I think that's a you know that's the thing. It's the '80s tone, right? Mm-hmm. You have the the topless frat party that's supposed to be good. Like that's the ideal of American culture. And then the inverse, the worst thing that can happen to you in prison is not the financial, it's not the, you know, notoriety, it's not the mm-hmm. prison time, it's, ha- you know, being raped by a homosexual person in a jail. Mm-hmm. So it's weird, right? The right. whole thing is, you know, it's just kind of sad to watch now. Again, if it's 1982, people are probably cackling at that. Oh, yeah. It's 100%. really funny, right? So... We have a tough time being impartial. No, no, not the context that, uh, of the film, but. I would say not that gay, lesbian, or trans critics at the time probably would not have called that out. But like in the popular culture, nobody would have cared. Nobody would have even no. mentioned this as a thing. So no, we're done here. Okay, well, the machine has told us that we do need to wrap things up. So first and foremost, let's talk about critics' choice. This is the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time this film was released. Roger Ebert did not have a review for this movie, so I'm going to use Gene oh. Siskel instead. Yeah, I thought um, they talked about it on the show. I guess nothing they did. written. Yeah, but he never wrote a review, I guess. So I'm paraphrasing Gene Siskel here, basically. Outside of Michael Keaton's performance, this could have been a dog of the week. On their show, they would talk about like the worst movie of the week, and they called it the dog of the week. Um, it feels like a sitcom pilot that stretched too long. Keaton's character feels modern to 1982. Everything else feels older and tired. Based on this one role, I would now pay to see Keaton in just about anything. Anything except Night Shift. Wow. Pauline Kael, on the other hand, she actually liked this movie. I wouldn't say she loved it, but she did have some fairly positive things to say about it. But she ends it this way. Night Shift doesn't have the scale to be a runaway hit or the focus. The emphasis is on the nebbish, but we're more interested in the hipster. And though the psychopathology of the city life is used as the source of the comedy, 
the film doesn't quite develop that into enough of a theme. About two-thirds of the way through, the situations begin to have the TV blahs, and even the pacing slumps when the two heroes are released from jail. But the film picks up at the end, and there are a lot of attractive performers, especially the one-time second season... Second City comedian Shelley Long. As the prostitute heroine, she's a newfangled satiric version of the girl next door. But if it weren't for Michael Keaton, the ultimate big city inhabitant with shady dreams, the man whose body is always talking, the film would seem negligible. Who can resist a hero who has always wanted to dress like a pimp? So basically both are saying the same thing in a, in a fewer or less Different words. Which is like, yeah. There's some things at work, but like Michael Keaton is the standout star. Like this is definitely a star turn for Michael Keaton. Yes. It's like his clute, Dave. It's like his clute. I, I still can't believe Henry Winkler's character brings up Did you see clute. that clute movie? Argyle. Oh, God. Do you think this film holds up and is it still culturally relevant? Uh, no and no. I, I think some of the jokes hold up, yes, right? Because uh, they're well written. Uh, Michael Keaton's performance holds up only in that we know that he can perform. Right. But I think the, the movie's very tired. It's tropey. It's slow. So Yeah, like I, I will have to be honest. Like would I watch this again? Like, sure, if somebody hadn't seen it and wanted to watch Night Shift from 1982, there are far worse things I could sit through again. Sure. Am I going to rush to see this? No, I don't think it necessarily holds up outside of a few really well-crafted jokes. The song, That's What Friends Are For, is great, but like that exists outside of this movie. It's like You could listen to just that song and it'd be perfectly great. And nobody does anymore, by the way, but yes. Uh, I don't know. Zan Warwick <laughs> is pretty big with the kids, Dave, so. <laughs> Emerson's going to be skipping home. That's what friends are for. I'm like, how was your day? Stafford oh, keeps smiling. Great. I was like, what are you doing? Start a prostitution ring at elementary school. No, that's not Oh, God. That. <laughs> that's our script idea, Dave. That's our script idea. <laughs> no one is going to make this All movie. the teachers went home. We have the school to ourselves. All right, let's, let's move on. Let's get All right, gross. well, we do need to rate this film, but before we do, that is what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave, vsthemachine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release a video each week on our YouTube channel that matches the movie that we're talking about that week, so uh, you can check us out over there. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar a month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So Dave, um, out of five, what would you give Night Shift? I'm going to pull the Kyle. I'm going to give it a 2.5 for being middling. I go a bit lower overall, but, you know, Michael Keaton's great, so I get to discover that. And nobody's particularly bad in this. I mean, that's something... Mm -hmm. That's not always worth commenting on, but just because I can sound so negative in general, I didn't hate anybody's performance in this film. No, I, yeah. You know, everybody's fine. It's just the movie concept itself was was tired. So I'm going to go yeah. 2.5. Here's yeah. the thing. I actually kind of wrestled with this. Ultimately, I think I'm just slightly positive on this movie. So I'm giving it a three. <laughs> Again, kind of in the middle-ish region. That is going to average to 2.75, which will round down to 2.5 over on Letterboxd. That is going to tie with one film here, Dave. So do you think we should put this above or below Losing Ground? Below. I'm right there with you. Again, if I look at those two movies, I'm like, if we're talking about... <laughs> cultural significance cultural significance <laughs> and stuff like that i think you have to give the edge to losing ground so yeah 
Entering our list at the number 12 position is Night Shift, right below Losing Ground, right above Pink Floyd, The Wall. Mm, still getting hate messages, I'm sure, for that. Sure. But we should see what we are watching next week. So I'm going to push this button here. Oh, The World According to Garp is what we're going to mm. be watching next week. The movie title that I always confuse with What's Eating Gilbert Grape, but could not be more <laughs> different of mo- as movies, as far as I know. I've never seen it, but I do. I've heard the title, so I don't know what I'm in for. I'm sure it's going to be great. It is a Robin Williams, is it not? I don't know. Let's Google Lord it. I've never watched that. it. Never seen it. Never seen it. Yes. It is Robin, Robin Williams. Williams. Okay. I think this is our first Robin Williams movie, which is, I think is bonkers, too, to think about that we did in 1999. from a John Irving uh, book. Well, it'll be just as good as the Cider House rules then, Dave. (laughs) Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I haven't seen it before either, so I'm interested in jumping in. What what do you wear to a meeting where you're going to confront a person about embezzling funds? What do you Mm -hmm. think I should wear? I think you should get a very large furry fedora. Mm, Good idea. Good idea. And do I walk like this, like an exaggerated, like long gait as I twirl my cane? Yeah, the cane does have to have an ivory handle, but if you've got that I killed that cane- this elephant myself, Dave. <laughs> this movie would have been better if they also had to keep hiding their business from Mr. and Mrs. Roper.